Well, if you have your Bibles with you again this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the New Testament book of 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It's on page 1260 if you're using the Pew Bible. And if you're a guest with us, we've been working uh, verse by verse through uh, this short letter from Paul, and we've come to the final section of uh, chapter 2. And what I thought would be one sermon and that I would struggle to get a sermon out of the passage is going to be three sermons. And so last week was the first one, and today will be the second one, and next week uh, we'll finish this passage. And this passage has gripped my heart. It is so practical and relevant for the days that we find ourselves uh, living. And I want to speak out of the overflow of my pastor's heart to you today as we think about being secure being secure in Christ, what we just sang about. We need to understand what Scripture teaches us about our security because everything around us is being positioned to cause us to live in fear. And I'll remind us this morning of 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7 where Paul told Timothy that God has not given us a spirit of fear. A spirit of fear does not come from God. God wants His people to be secure. Secure in His Son. And this is what Paul teaches the Thessalonians as they're struggling in the midst of darkness. So let's begin reading in verse 13, and this is what God's Word says. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. And to this He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. In this passage, Paul moves from prophecy to practical Christian living. He transitions from the characteristics of the Antichrist to thanksgiving and doctrine and exhortation and prayer. He moves from warning the Thessalonians to encouraging them from the delusion and deception of those who are perishing to offering thanksgiving to God for those who are being saved. I remind you that much of the Thessalonians' confusion about their future destiny and the second coming of Christ resulted from their lack of spiritual understanding about their identity. And so in these verses, Paul takes these young believers back to the very basics and foundation of their salvation by reminding them of what it means to be in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul does not want the Thessalonians to forget that their salvation provides the only basis by which they have the promise of escaping the judgment of God at the end. And so he wastes little time transitioning from his thoughts concerning the deceptive work of the Antichrist to thoughts concerning the transforming work of the real Christ. And he writes this passage so that the Thessalonian believers and believers of every generation, like you and me, will be secure, that will be able to stand 
and that will remain settled in the days of darkness. And so we're going to think again this morning about being secure in verses 13 and 14. And you'll notice, as I reminded you last week, at the beginning of verse 13, Paul begins his instruction by offering thanksgiving to God. And this offer of thanksgiving is not unusual for Paul. This is often how he begins many of his letters in the New Testament. But in verses 13 and 14, Paul gives thanks specifically for the Thessalonian believers and how they responded to the salvation that God delivered to them through his son, Jesus Christ. And what Paul does in verses 13 and 14 is review for the Thessalonian believers and review for you and me what theologians refer to as the order of salvation. And while Paul does not go succinctly in order and moves around a bit concerning the doctrine of salvation, in these two verses, he does lay before the Thessalonian believers and he does lay before you and me exactly how God brings sinners from death to life. How God rescues sinners from their sin and makes them secure in his son. And so Paul gives thanks to God for these Thessalonian believers and how they've responded to the gospel of grace through God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he begins by reminding the Thessalonian believers and us in verse 13 that God's salvation of sinners always flows out of his love for sinners. And he reminds us that we're loved by God. And then after talking about that foundation of love, secondly, last week we remembered that God chooses his people for salvation and that God's choice flows out of his love. And so believers in Christ are loved by God and were chosen by God. And if Paul didn't tell the Thessalonians anything else about their salvation, if he didn't teach you and I anything else about our salvation, those two truths alone are enough for us to be secure. That none of us have to wonder, no matter what we've done in our life, no matter where we've come from, none of us have to wonder what God thinks about us because the Bible teaches us that God loves us and that He demonstrates His love for sinners by sending His Son to die on the cross. And that through the death and the work of His Son, he chooses a people for himself to be rescued from sin. So we're loved by God, friends, and we're chosen by God. And there is security in being loved by your creator and your maker and your redeemer. And there's security in knowing that God chose you to belong to him. So let's pick up there. And number three, I want to remind you this morning what Paul reminded the Thessalonians that you are sanctified. Look again in verse 13 through sanctification by the Spirit. And do you see how? Paul is building this doctrine of salvation. It begins with the foundation of God's love. And then it moves to God's choice of a people for himself. And out of that choice flows the sanctifying work of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God. It is through the Spirit of God that you are brought to salvation. God the Father's choice in eternity past is accomplished in our lives through the work 
of his Holy Spirit. And this work of the Spirit, Paul tells us in verse 13, is called sanctification. So what does it mean to be sanctified? It literally means that you are set apart by God. It literally means that you are made holy by God through His Spirit. And the Bible teaches through His Word that there are two aspects to this work of salvation through the Spirit in our lives. The Bible teaches us that there is a positional sanctification in which the Holy Spirit of God sets a person apart for salvation positionally. And this is the sanctification that Paul is talking about in verse 13. So that when you are saved by God through the work of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, you not only stand in the love of God, you not only stand chosen by God, you stand sanctified by God. You stand set apart by God. You stand holy by God. Paul describes it this way in Ephesians chapter 1, that you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of God for the day of your redemption. You are literally marked by the third person of the Trinity as belonging to the God of the universe. That is how secure and set apart and sanctified you are. God puts his mark on you when you come to faith in Christ. And he says, you are mine. And this positional, sanctifying work of the Spirit is a work in the heart of the sinner that leads them to turn from their sin and repentance and believe by faith in Christ and what He's done for them on the cross. The prophet Ezekiel described this sanctifying work of the Spirit this way in Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 26. He says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. That is is the sanctifying work of the Spirit of God. He takes your old, calloused, hardened, sin-filled heart and He crushes it and softens it and gives you a heart of flesh, a heart that is moldable through the Spirit, a heart that is softened to God and the things of God, a heart that is softened to the people of God, a heart that is softened to the Word of God, a heart that was hardened and stood in rebellion against God, and He crushes it through His Spirit and gives you a soft heart. He changes you from the inside out. Ezekiel describes this sanctifying work of the Spirit in greater detail earlier in his prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 11 verses 19 and 20. And listen carefully to this new heart that he gives and what flows out of it. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. And I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and I will give them a heart of flesh. Now listen to verse 20. Listen to what happens when God through His Spirit sanctifies you and gives you a heart of flesh, verse 20, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. When you become sanctified by the Spirit and you get this heart of flesh and your heart of stone and heart of hardness is crushed by God and His saving work, He softens your heart and He gives you a desire to walk with Him and to follow Him and to obey Him and to begin to love the things that He loves and to begin to want the things that He wants for you in your life. And that's how you know you've been set apart by God. You have a desire for the things of God and for the kingdom of God. You have a desire to obey Him. You have a desire to walk with Him. 
You find yourself crying when nothing could make you cry. You find yourself rejoicing in what God is doing around you. You find yourself being able to see and understand things that you were never able to see and understand before. This is the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit of God, positionally giving you a new heart. But He doesn't just give you a new heart, the sanctifying work of the Spirit. It sets you apart from sin to righteousness. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 9 through 11. And listen carefully to what Paul does in these three verses. He makes a transition, and here's what he's doing. He's showing you, he's showing me, he's showing the Corinthians what our life is like before we're sanctified by the Spirit and what our life should be like after we're sanctified by the Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you not know that those who are not sanctified by the Spirit, if you will, will not inherit the kingdom of God, will not go to heaven? And listen to what he says next. Do not be deceived. Why does he say that? Because people are deceived. People are deceived about who is going to heaven. And so Paul says at the outset to the Corinthians, the unrighteous, the ungodly, those who are not sanctified by the Spirit will not inherit the kingdom of God. And don't deceive yourself about that. Now listen to the contrast. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Did you hear that? And, and listen to what's repeated over and over by Paul. Nor, nor, nor. He's just making a list. And friends, do you see in the list that the list that Paul gives to the Corinthians is the world that we're living in? And he says at the beginning of the list, don't deceive yourself. No one who practices these things will be in heaven. Now, why does he say that? Listen to verse 11, and here's the contrast. And such were some of you. That's it. That's the contrast. Corinthians, you used to be like everything on this list, but you're not anymore. Because you've been changed. You've been sanctified by the Spirit. And this list no longer describes your life. Do you, know, do you understand what that means, church? It means if that list still describes your life, if you're still practicing the things on that list, you have not been positionally sanctified by the Spirit of God. And you can listen to any feel-good preacher, any feel-good church that tells you that you don't have to worry about that. All you have to do is say a prayer. All you have to do is this or that. And you can keep living like that. And I'm telling you, on the authority of the Word of God, the Bible says you're being deceived. Such were some of you. You've been changed, is what Paul tells them. And listen to how they were changed. It's relevant back to what he says to the Thessalonians. You were washed. How? By the blood of Jesus. The only thing that can cleanse you from your sins. You were sanctified. You were set apart 
by God. You were justified just as if you never committed any of those sins in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. That is being positionally sanctified. Your life has changed. It's different. This work of the Spirit brings a total transformation of your life so that you are born again. That's how the Bible describes your sanctification. John 3, 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. Unless you are positionally sanctified by the Spirit, unless you are washed by the blood of Jesus, you cannot see the kingdom. You cannot get into the kingdom. You will not be a part of the kingdom. John 3, 8. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. That is positional sanctification. That God sets His love and affection on you before the foundation of the world. That He chooses you in the work of His Son before the foundation of the world. And at just the right time for your salvation, the Holy Spirit of God blows across your life like the wind and births you into the kingdom of God and takes you from being a lawless, unrighteous, rebellious, hard-hearted sinner towards God and crushes you and softens you and gives you a heart of flesh and changes you positionally and changes the direction of your life and you're born again through the Spirit of God. You know what happens when you're born again through the Spirit? You become a new creation. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's what Paul describes in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Your old life is dead. It was buried. And you've been given a new life. In Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be sanctified through the Spirit. Your life's different. It's different from 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. You're washed, you're sanctified, you're set apart. And positionally, if you've been saved by God through the work of His Son, Jesus Christ, this very moment this morning, you are holy. You are set apart. You may not feel holy. You may not think that you're holy. But based on the authority of the Word of God, if you've been born again, if you've been changed through the Holy Spirit, you are holy. You are set apart. God has put His mark on you. What else could you want to be more secure? I mentioned to you that the Bible talks about two types of sanctification, right? Positional sanctification. But it also talks about progressive sanctification. And progressive sanctification is the Spirit's ongoing work after the moment of salvation to help you grow and mature and become more and more like Jesus Christ every day and I want to talk to you about that for just a second because I want you to understand this whole work of sanctification it's important Paul describes it this way in Philippians 2 13 and 14 this is progressive sanctification therefore my beloved as you've always obeyed so now not only as in my presence but much more in my absence work out your salvation with fear and trembling work it out Verse 13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Positional sanctification is totally the work of God, the Holy Spirit. You don't do anything to make yourself positionally sanctified. The Holy Spirit of God does that. 
But did you hear what Paul said in Philippians 2? You and I, once we are positionally sanctified, we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. As God works in us, we're to work it out. And so what God put in your heart when he softened it and gave you a heart of flesh and gave you a new heart and birthed you into the kingdom through his spirit, you're now to work out. Paul described it this way to the Thessalonian church in his first letter to them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. He says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. It means this church, it is God's will that you grow in your sanctification. It's not enough for you to just be positionally sanctified. That's just the beginning point. God wants you to grow and move forward in your sanctification. And Paul told this church of new believers that it was God's will for them that they would pursue holiness and they would pursue sanctification. And listen to how he describes what that looks like. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Do you know what he was saying to them? Church, if you are positionally sanctified, you should be progressing in your sanctification. You should be progressing in holiness and honor of God. And you should not be living like the unbelieving Gentiles live. There should be a clear difference between your life in their life and listen here's what you need to understand God doesn't just want a part of you God wants all of you God wants your mind he wants your heart he wants your soul he wants your body he wants your affections he wants your emotions he wants your thoughts he wants a hundred percent of you sanctified you say well how how can you say that well this is what the bible says first thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23 and now may the god of peace himself sanctify you are you listening sanctify you completely completely all of you a hundred percent he doesn't want 99% of you, and you hold on to that other percent that you don't want to give up. Because you know what happens? That 1% that you don't want to give up, that's exactly where the devil will attack you. That 1%. And so Paul says to them that God would sanctify you completely, and your whole spirit and your soul and your body would be kept blameless until the coming of Christ. And listen, as he's talking about this progressive sanctification, listen to what he has in view. The return of Jesus. I want you to pursue sanctification, believers. I want you to pursue holiness. I want you to pursue honor. I want you to pursue it in every area of your life because Jesus is coming back. You do realize that. He is coming back. If what you're seeing on the news hasn't convinced you that he's coming back, I'm not sure anything will. But sanctification should be understood in the context of the future return of Christ. That it's not enough to just rest in being sanctified. That I need to be pursuing holiness. God's desire that we would be sanctified completely. Listen to how he described it in Romans 6.19. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, but just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Friends, that, that was your life and my life before Christ that we presented our whole selves to sin and to lawlessness. 
and that presenting our whole selves to sin and lawlessness only led to more sin and lawlessness. And Paul is telling the Romans, now that you've been sanctified by the Spirit of Christ, you should present yourselves in sanctification and righteousness that will lead to more sanctification and righteousness. Don't just be satisfied with where you are. Give him more of yourself. Pursue more of his holiness. Romans 6.22 But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Did you hear how he described it? Before Christ, before the work of the Spirit in your life, you were slaves to sin. And now that you've been sanctified and set apart by the Holy Spirit of God, you should be slaves of God. All of yourself given to Him. Does this describe you? Have you been sanctified and set apart in this way? That there's a clear change in your life that's been brought about through the Spirit? These texts demand that kind of examination. Lest you be deceived. Notice what he says in verse 13. You're, you're sanctified through the Spirit, but there's a human side to this sanctification. When you believed in the truth, God is sovereign over salvation. These verses are teaching that, but man still must respond. And Paul says that God doesn't believe for us, but through His Spirit, He grants us the ability to believe. That we're confronted with the truth, and the Spirit of God blows like the wind on our lives, and gives us the ability to believe the truth that we're confronted with. And, and in verse 13, he's painting a stark contrast between those who perish in verses 10 because they refuse to love the truth and those who are being saved in verse 13 because they believe the truth. Belief in the truth leads to salvation. That's why Paul said in Romans 10, 9, and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And God doesn't believe for you. You must believe yourself. And yet you can't believe unless the Holy Spirit blows on your life and helps you believe. And you, you say, well, help me make sense of that, Pastor. Well, listen to Acts 13, 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. They believed. How did they believe? They were confronted with the truth. And when they heard the truth, they rejoiced over the truth. They loved the truth that they heard. And they began to believe that truth. And it was the work of the Spirit of God on their life. Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 25. Paul tells Timothy to correct his opponents with gentleness because God may perhaps grant them repentance and lead them to a knowledge of the truth. You're confronted with the truth and the Holy Spirit of God uses the truth to convict you and lead you to belief and repentance of your sins and trusting in Christ. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's God's gift to you to sanctify you and set you apart through His Holy Spirit. That is security, friends. Security. When the Holy Spirit sets His seal upon you, no one or nothing can take that away from you. And it all flows out of his love. You're loved by God. You're chosen by God. You're sanctified by God. Do you know how all this comes about in your life? Verse 14, you're called by God. To this he called you 
through our gospel. The phrase to this refers to the previous verse in Paul's statement in verse 13 that through the sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth, you were called. The calling of God is the grace and power of God to irresistibly draw sinners to himself. There are two types of calling in Scripture. There is the universal call that goes out to everyone to be saved. And there is the effectual call that makes people saved. Let me show you the difference. Matthew twenty-two fourteen is the universal call. For many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called to salvation. And the effectual call is the call of the gospel that those whom God has loved and drawn to himself hear the gospel and respond to it through the power of the Holy Spirit and believe in repentance. Jesus described it this way in John six thirty seven, And all that the Father gives me will come to me. Did you hear that? All that the Father gives me will come to me. That's why it is the effectual, irresistible call. John 6:40 For this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him on the last day. Did you hear what Jesus says if you will look to him if you will believe in him if you will trust in him for your salvation he will raise you up with him on the last day. John 6:44 No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Whom he loves, he chooses, he sanctifies, he calls and he will raise them on the last day. 2 Timothy 1.9, he saved us and he called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. God does this work. He calls you in repentance to himself. And I know what some of you are thinking. Well, what's the point? pastor? What's the point of praying? What's the point of preaching? What's the point of supporting missionaries and sending them out if everything that you're teaching us from this text is true? And I would say to you, if that's your objection this morning, if that's your understanding of this text, then I've not done a good job of explaining it and you've misunderstood. When you understand these rich truths of salvation properly, it actually becomes an encouragement to pray. It actually becomes an encouragement to share the gospel. It actually becomes an encouragement to write a big check. It actually becomes an encouragement to go to the mission field. Because what God is teaching you and me that wherever we send our missions money, wherever we go on mission, whomever we share with, whomever we pray for, whomever we love on through the gospel, God will do His saving work through His Spirit and you can never fail. Because it's not dependent upon you. It's dependent upon God. You're just the vehicle that he might use to make it happen. There's great freedom to stand before you this morning with confidence and courage and conviction and just tell you, this is what the Bible says about salvation, whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not. This is God's truth, and there's great freedom in that, knowing that God will use his truth to soften and crush whomever he will and bring them to himself. My job is just to be faithful and tell you the truth. And what's my job is your job. Your job is just to be faithful and tell the truth. Your job is just to pray. Your job is just to share. Your job is just to love. Your job is just to give. Your job is just to go and trust in God that he's got a people for himself that will come to himself in his time through his spirit. There's security in that. There's confidence in that. 
There's joy in that. And I can tell you time and time again how I've seen that happen. I'm just going to give you one example this morning because some of you have never heard this story. But the very first time we went to Nepal on a mission trip, their Sunday happens on a Saturday. And we were up by the third largest mountain in the world on some hillside under a plastic tarp having church. And there was an old, dusty, rocky road that just went up right by the field where we were having church in this makeshift church. And an old man, I bet you he was in his 80s, a former Nepali soldier, just happened to be walking by the church service. And he saw everybody out there, and he saw Americans there, and he was curious, and he came over to the tent. And the sermon was about the crucifixion of Jesus. And as soon as the service was over, he went to some of the Nepali pastors and said, I want to give my life to Christ. And he was saved on that hillside. There's confidence. You just preach. You just pray. You just give. You just go. And God does his work. Do you realize that's exactly what happened to the Thessalonian church? That God sent Paul and his companions to this area of the world and they stood up and they proclaimed the gospel to these people and these people heard the gospel and they believed and they responded and a church was birthed. And that's exactly what Paul is teaching us in this passage. Do you, do you need further truth? Are you still unconvinced? Listen to Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. This verse is often called the golden chain of salvation. That it is the summary of the Bible for how God saves his people in one verse. A summary of the whole doctrine of salvation in one verse. Romans 8.30. Listen to it. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Just in case you, you've lost it already, those whom he predestined, those whom he loved and chose, he called. And those whom he called, he justified, made them right with God through his Son. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What began in love will. Do you hear the confidence of your pastor? What began in love will end in glory. And that's the last thing I want to remind you of this morning. You are glorified. You are glorified. Look at the end of verse 15. So that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 14 stands in contrast to Paul's description of the fate of the unbeliever. If you're without Christ this morning and you die without Christ, what I'm getting ready to read to you from God's word is your eternal fate. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. What is he saying? Those who don't know Christ are destined for the wrath of God. That's their fate. The wrath of God for sin for all eternity. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That's the fate of anyone apart from Christ away from the glory of God, under the wrath of God, suffering flames of eternal fire and punishment for sin. 
But that doesn't have to be anyone's fate in this room if you will look to Jesus and believe on him. You need to understand the significance of Paul's last statement in verse 14. I told you a couple weeks ago that we all are identified with Adam in his sin. The Bible describes this this way in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We remain in the image of God, and because Adam sinned and we fell with Adam in his first sin, we fell short of God's glory. We've lost the glory of God. But do you see the text, friends? Look at your Bible. Do you see the text? That what you lost in Adam, what you lost the glory of God, what you lost in Adam is regained through the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will obtain the glory of God. Does that not amaze you? I am amazed. I am awestruck that in my sin, I've lost and fallen short of the glory of God. But in Christ, and in His righteousness, and in His holiness, He's bought it back for me. And He's brought it to me through the Spirit of God. And one day, because of Christ, I will dwell in glory forever. And listen, listen. Oh, it's better than that. I won't just dwell in glory. I will be glorified like the Lord Jesus Christ because I will be able to look on him and see him as he is. We've obtained the glory of God Jesus, right before he went to the cross, he prayed this very thing for all those who would belong to him. John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what that would be like? Take the prettiest sunset you've ever seen. The one that has just left you dumbfounded and you've looked at it and you've gazed upon it and you've given God the glory for it. It can't even be compared to the glory of that day. And what began in grace before the foundation of the world was ever spoken into existence will end in glory. There is security. Security. You know, with, with a text like this, I have to quote Spurgeon. We who believe in Jesus are so loved by the Lord that he will never be satisfied until we share his glory. Did you hear that? He will never be satisfied until we're there with him. So be glad in the Lord and rejoice in the glorious prospect that he set before you. God was not content to choose you to happiness here. But he has also chosen you to happiness hereafter. He was not satisfied with making a little heaven for you here below. But he has made a great heaven for you up above. He's not appointed an earthly paradise where he might sometimes come to you as he came to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. But he has prepared a place for you in his home in glory that you may dwell forever in your father's house where there are many abiding places Rejoice then, loved by the Lord, that he has called you through our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I would say, and give him the glory for it. 
Now hear your pastor's heart. Paul wants the Thessalonians and us to grasp the fact that no one is more secure than the Christian. From God's choice in eternity past, through His call in time, in His sanctifying work of the Spirit, and our believing response, and then on to the endless age of eternity which lies ahead, salvation is a grand design which is always Salvation is a grand design which is always, which is always, which is always brought to completion in Jesus Christ. No one is chosen and called who will not be subsequently glorified. Therefore, there is no reason for you to be afraid. There is no reason for you to lose heart. There is no reason for you to be discouraged of the things in this world, in this life. There is every reason for you to have steel in your spine and courage in your heart and joy and rejoicing on your way to glory no matter what happens in this life. It is guaranteed. It's as sure as if it's already done. What more security do you need? What more? Why will you continue to lose heart? Why will you continue to faint and cower in fear? You have been given a glorious gospel to rest in. And as I've told you before, I will tell you again. If you don't know Christ, you have every reason to be afraid and insecure. And if that describes you today, would you just do what Jesus said? Look to him and believe. And you'll be saved. You're secure. Don't ever forget that. You're secure. Let's pray.